0: What causes a church to decline? What causes a church to decline in regards to number during the middle of the the twentieth century? Churches in some of, a major, uh, some of America's major cities they went through serious decline as people started moving out of the city and then into the suburbs. Uh, and then, in talking to Pastor Rick, I know that that's actually what happened here. Um, You know, sort of L.A. expanded, obviously, very rapidly. Uh, People were moving all over. So this basically was very much a city. And then people started moving out, out to places like Chino, Chino Hills, etc. That's one reason why this church declined in number. And then, of course, add to that uh, the changing demographics of the area. So it's no surprise that English churches started decreasing in number. And language-specific congregations... Uh, have been on the rise, but that's speaking about number. Much more significantly is the issue of a church's declining health, because health and number, you know, it's not they shouldn't be equated with one another. What causes churches to decline in health? And then, when they're declining in health, what can we do to nurse them back to health? Today, we begin a series in the book of First Timothy. We just finished a series through the life of Abraham. Now we're in the New Testament letter of 1st Timothy. And uh, the series is called The Deliberate Church. In this letter of 1st Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to a young man named Timothy. And he charges him. Recover the health of the church. That's his charge in the letter of 1st Timothy. Uh, This pastoral letter or epistle, as it is called. It's interesting because in it, we get to hear what's on God's mind in terms of the recovery of the health of the church. In it, you all get to hear about what ought to be expected of your pastors and what ought to be expected of the very congregation that you're in. So especially for those of you who are uh, headed towards the ministry, if you're wondering what, what exactly is the ministry based in, and how exactly should the church be ordered, this book, along with the other pastoral epistles, are very important here. I mean, you have Paul the Apostle writing to one of his disciples who's going into the ministry. He's being sent out to establish the health of the church. So the pastoral epistles, you have First Timothy, you have Second Timothy, and then you have the book of Titus. And they're actually very, they're quite similar. So go ahead, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the book of 1st Timothy, the letter of 1st Timothy. And I'll go ahead and read all of chapter 1, although we'll be focusing um, through verse 7 today. 1st Timothy, chapter 1, verses... I'll go ahead and read the, the whole first chapter there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the for the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed god with which i have been entrusted i thank him who has given me strength christ jesus our lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service though formerly i was a blasphemer persecutor and insolent opponent but i received mercy because i had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in christ jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost but i received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost jesus christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not that they may learn not to blaspheme. For those of you, for those of you who don't know, Paul was a missionary. And according to the book of Acts, he went on at least three missionary journeys. And the book of Acts, it ends with Paul in Rome awaiting trial before the emperor. And in God's providence, we just don't know. Exactly what happened in between then and then his death. But historians think that eventually Paul was released from jail. And then he continued to go on these missionary journeys. And with him was Timothy. So there he's visiting churches that he already established. And then he's charged to start new ones. And on this missionary journey, Paul and Timothy had stopped in Ephesus, so modern day Turkey, to help the church there. And of course, Paul, you know, he's going around these missionary journeys He's responsible for the starting and the oversight of many different churches. He moves on to Macedonia and then he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to help establish that church. So you can imagine, you know, young churches are springing up. And uh, you have genuine Christians, but then if you don't have strong oversight or an established church, you know, you're naturally going to have some shady teaching and some, some shady people rising up within the ranks of the church within the church's membership. So Paul writes to him, to Timothy, wanting him to establish the church. And this is what he says there in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Go ahead and turn there. He knows that Timothy is facing these challenges. And this is what he says. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So here's young Timothy. He's left in charge of this young church. Paul eventually has gone on, but he wants to return there. And he's saying, look, I want you to know how people ought to behave in the household of God. So they were facing challenges inside here. More specifically, the challenges that they were facing were false teachers and false teaching. So somehow these false teachers had risen up in the ranks of the church and they were leading the church. And so he says there, look in chapter one, verse three, go ahead and turn there. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Imagine being young Timothy. Imagine you guys, okay, you guys being in a position to help establish the young church. So you are a young man. That's what we know about Timothy. He was a young man, maybe in his 30s. He was probably converted under Paul's ministry in his teens. Uh, Over a decade passes. Now maybe he's in his young 30s. We know that also in terms of personality, that he was also a bit timid. So in 2 2 Timothy 1, Paul encourages him. He says, we don't have a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power through the spirit. You know, you know. He probably was timid and he was known for being shy. That's why Paul is actually encouraging him. So he is young. We know that he is shy, maybe a little bit timid. We also know that he had stomach problems. Uh, We know that from 1 Timothy 5.23 there. Paul says that uh, he encourages him for these stomach problems to go ahead and drink certain beverages. Wine, he says. So, you know, if we're trying to put together this personality, this person of, of Timothy here. I think we all could identify with him. Young people, generally speaking, in a young church, a little bit timid at times. And he has these physical ailments, probably increasing to his increasing his timidity. But yet Paul charges him of all people remain and charge people not to teach false doctrine or different doctrine. So what were these people teaching? What were these people teaching here? The subject matter is pretty clear there in chapter one, um, verse four. I'll just start from three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So here we got myths. And then we got genealogies. But frankly, we don't really know too much about the details of what these were. Um, But given that Paul says to these people in verse seven, that they wanted to to be law teachers, most likely these genealogies and myths just had to do with the background of Judaism or the people. So maybe they were embellished stories about uh, the Old Testament, whatever they were to Paul. He seems tired of them. They're endless genealogies endless genealogies and they're promoting speculation but they're teaching in their teaching they're also making up rules you know for some reason uh even christians we want to latch on to certain things that we ought to do in order to maybe perhaps earn good standing with god and in chapter 4 verse 3 there it seems that these false teachers are saying don't get married and abstain from certain foods go ahead and turn there to chapter 4 verse 3 These folks are in verse three, they're forbidding marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and with prayer, they're sanctified because the people of God are using them. So, OK, anytime you got someone making up and creating commands and enforcing others to comply, you are not in a good position. Marriage and food, according to Paul, they were created by God. Clearly things to be received with thanksgiving, it says. Um, but they earn for themselves a reputation, and it is not good. These false teachers here. We're just trying to get an understanding of who these people were. Um because it's those people that Timothy is supposed to charge them not to teach. I mean, in First Timothy, they are described as unproductive, puffed up with conceit, foolish, not understanding what they're talking about, or their bold assertions. Um, me and Jeremy, we spent some time at this church, and uh, there was, uh, we were reviewing basically the whole entire day's worth of activities. <clears throat> and... Um, the pastoral staff was and uh there was a lawyer who was teaching a sunday school class and the lawyer he was a very good lawyer trained to never admit something that he doesn't know because you know the 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 case falls apart if you admit something you don't know but what this person was doing is he was sort of making up things on the fly maybe using some things that he had heard in the past and just sort of saying it very confidently here um Now there, he didn't have foolish intentions, but these false teachers here, they have foolish intentions. They are bold about their assertions, but yet they know nothing about what they're talking about. That's what Paul clearly says. They know nothing. They're ignorant. They're foolish. But yet in the church, for some reason, they're coming out with bold assertions here. So they are not good. They want to be law teachers, but for some reason, their hearts are hardened towards God. Can you imagine that wanting to be a law teacher, a Bible teacher, but having your heart being hardened towards God? That's what they were, but it seems like they were using the words of God to sort of fuel their own carnal desires, maybe to be teaching or even just to think very wisely about certain things, maybe historical things. But yet they're not qualified at all. It's a lesson for us, isn't it? That just because someone comes out and says that I believe the Bible and I want to teach it, you shouldn't believe them. Because they can be using the very words of God to fuel their own carnal desires there. Uh, It seems like here they're using Old Testament stories or even uh, historical tellings and myths about the stories. And they're using that. So at best, okay, at best, they're letting peripheral things, peripheral things drive their teaching message. So they want to focus on the peripheral things at the expense of what is center, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells them, Paul tells Timothy to rebuke them, charge them not to teach false doctrine. What is center is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you just go on and read all of Paul's different letters, you know very clearly what the center is for him, that God created man to be in a relationship with him, to worship him and to glorify him, to exalt his name above all things, to experience all of his blessings in the garden and in this world that we live in. But yet we rebelled against him. Wanting very much like these false teachers, wanting to live our own ways and teach our own things and to draw our own boundaries. So we pursued a life of sin apart from God. We started drawing our own doctrine, redefining things according to how we wanted to live. And we therefore earned for ourselves just condemnation and hell. That's rebellion against the king. But God in his grace and mercy saves him. So you look in in chapter 1 at 1 Timothy there. Verse 15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why Christ came into it. He was outside of it, God the Son, but he came into it. He took on flesh. And why did he take on flesh? It was in order to save those who had rebelled against him, the very ones who put him to death. And then, therefore, everyone who repents and believes in this Jesus, repents of their sins, and turns and believes on him, will in fact be saved. That is what's center there in the message of Paul. And we're going to see that a little bit later on. But here are these false teachers. The peripheral things, at best peripheral things, are creeping in and taking over the land that should be designated for the center. You know that we're not above this, letting the peripheral things become center? We might not be enticed by myths and endless genealogies, but we have a temptation towards these very same things. Losing the center and putting the peripheral things into it. You know where I see people um making this compromise here? One example is in style of worship. Style of worship. For some in the older generation, now if you consider yourself part of the older generation, I'm not thinking about you in particular, I'm just saying in general. Some of the older generation, you know, if they see that we're using drums. They say, oh, you know, drums are from the devil soon kiss and ACDC are going to be leading our worship up here. And then soon enough, we're gone. No longer a Christian church. Now, for some of us, the younger generation, we might respond and say, what's with these stiff hymns? What's with this organ music? You guys know that uh, um, there was a time when this church had this music box. And you punch in the number of the hymn and out comes this organ music on level 10. Um, You know, yeah, you did not Yeah. So naturally you go to, to this box. Yeah. Which is totally fine. Now the gut instinct, the gut reaction for someone off the streets is to come in and say, what is with this music box? Old organ music. Surely this is not worship. How can you worship to this style? And then what happens is style of music determines whether or not someone stays at a church or not. If the style of music is made the test of fellowship or the thing that bonds fellowship, then you have just showed us what is at your center. If one cares more about the church's style of music than your elderly brothers and sisters at the church, you have already lost the center. So folks come in off the street and they hear this blaring organ music and and they're saying, how can you worship with this style as opposed to all of the redeemed people, even if there are eight of them? That really shows what you value, doesn't it? You're, you're, You're focused on style or an instrument as opposed to the fact that all of these dead hearts and mouths have been unstopped by the grace of God. That's what's thinking amazing, isn't it? And so that leads other people, I think, and the mature folks for the mature folks, when they're keeping the gospel center, while acknowledging that style is not unimportant, they say, dude, you give me African drum beats, I'll sing anything you want to. You give me the organ that people have been using for hundreds of years, I'll, I'll sing that too. You give me Gregorian chant, as long as the doctrine is faithful and biblical, and I'm going to stink and rejoice in that. And that's what I pray that we as a church would do. As we keep the gospel as center, even though style is an important thing. It should never be pushed towards the center. You know where else I see this? Where the center sort of gets uh, taken over? It's by confusing the gospel with the implications of the gospel. Confusing the gospel with the implications of the gospel. So Jesus Christ dies on the cross for sin, where we deserve to. He bears our wrath and the sin that we committed so that we would be freed. But part of that, that's the gospel, the implication of that, when, when the gospel is working in our lives, we therefore want to do good to the people around us, right? That's a good thing. So you can think about all the different ways in which we want to be good, and that, then people can potentially start confusing the implications with the gospel itself. And it might look like this. Okay, First Baptist Church, having a program where we reach out to the poor is equally as important... Equally as important as First Baptist's responsibility for preaching the gospel. That would be a confusion of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. There the implications are elevated to center, which means the center therefore is diluted. So pick any ministry, okay? And there are so many good things to get involved with. So many things that I want you guys to get involved with. So many things that I want to get involved with. Doing good for our community. Okay, we could get involved at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We could fight homelessness, which for Hacienda Heights, as far as I understand, is actually right across the street. That's sort of the hub of Hacienda Heights' homeless community. We could fight drug trafficking and the sex slave trade. That's certainly a need here. We could help children and their families through partnering with the Department of Children and Family Services. We could seek to reach out to the socioeconomically disadvantaged by reaching out to the students at local schools. We could reach out to the Kiwanis Club and just do good to the neighborhood. We could go door to door uh, to do evangelism. We could plant churches. We could start theological education. We could minister to orphans. The list could just go on and on and on. And believe me, brothers and sisters, I want you guys to get involved in those things. That's why I'm talking to the Department of Ch- Children and Family Services. That's why we were going over to uh, the local high school to figure out what's going on there and try and establish relationship. That's why I'm trying to get a meeting with the, with, um, uh, the Department of Probation. That's why I'm actually trying to get involved with the Kiwanis Club. But those, those things are not the gospel. And those things are not the, the, the very thing that Jesus Christ has charged his church to do. But we confuse the implications of the gospel. With the gospel of self, even unintentionally, and eventually the gospel is lost. Eventually the gospel is lost. Uh, Now just to be clear here, the implications are very clear. If there is poor here in the church, if we actually understand the gospel, we ought to be taking care of the poor. But the message we herald is not we should take care of the poor. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that the gospel be worked into our hearts so that all of us, 50 people here, that we then would go on and fulfill the implications of the gospel. But if you dilute the center, eventually the center is lost. D.A. Carson writes, The first generation embraces the gospel, the second assumes the gospel, and the third loses the gospel. What he means is this. Uh, oftentimes churches, they'll be preaching the gospel in the first generation. They hear it and they believe it. They repent of their sins. and They believe in Jesus Christ. The second generation, they sort of rise up and they say, yeah, we understand that. But why aren't we talking about preaching the implications of the gospel? And so the second generation there, they hold on to the implications. And that's what they herald implications. Preach to the poor. Uh, the, the, the message of the good news is freedom for the poor. Here, we're not talking about poor in spirit only. We're talking about mainly the poor financially. Or, you know, sex trafficking, we are against it. That's what we preach. And then they assume the gospel. Implications are heralded. The gospel, the center, is assumed. Now, if you're a child growing up underneath the second generation where the gospel is always assumed and never clarified, implications are always preached, what do you then begin to understand and hear to be of primary importance? It isn't what's heralded. That is the gospel, or sh- I should say. It is what is heralded, which are the implications. Then that becomes the essence of Christianity, not the gospel because it's assumed. That's what he, that's what he means when he says, the first generation embraces the gospel, the second assumes the gospel, and the third loses the gospel. Soon enough, the gospel is entirely lost in that church where once it was evangelical, The people there, if they don't know the gospel, they are on a steady road to hell and they don't even realize it. C.S. Lewis wrote, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Eventually, it's just lost. For this church, Paul knew the trajectory that it would go on. They had the Old Testament, but yet they were teaching very different things. He knew that eventually the core, the center thing, would be lost. So in 1 Timothy 1, verse 4, he says that here, this church is, they're they're promoting, the the teachers are promoting speculations rather than the stewardship of God, speculations and controversies. And he chides these false teachers because they are useless. They are unprofitable. You see what Paul is getting at here? He wants the teaching to be profitable. He wants it to be useful. But these folks are promoting speculations. I mean, you get the sense that people are engaging with their hearts and their minds about stuff, maybe even stuff that's loosely based in the Bible, but they're doing it in their own little corner all by themselves, not building up the body. No wonder they're said to be full of conceit. Because all they care about is what they are thinking about. That's the decline in health here. False teachers teaching false things leading the Christians astray. So what was young Timothy to do? What was young Timothy to do? Another way to ask the question is, what brings the church back to health? What brings the church back to health? In short, it is keeping the main thing The main thing, as C.J. Mahani has said, a recovery of the gospel and a persistent witness of the gospel. So Paul charges Timothy, tell them not to teach differently. Tell them not to teach differently from the gospel. Now That's actually a very good summary, not to teach differently. Um, They're not to teach what they had received from the apostle Paul. So go ahead and look there in verse one of chapter one. Paul says the apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. He is an apostle that is Christ Jesus himself had revealed himself to him. He was therefore charged to establish, to, to lay the foundation of the church. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.13, he tells Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. That, that, that's not... Out-of-the-box thinking, that's in-the-box thinking. And, you know, today it's really cool to think out-of-the-box. You say, yeah, you know, challenge the status quo. You're on the cutting edge, redefining, rethinking everything for the future generation. Like, that just sounds cool, doesn't it? To be able to be in that position, out-of-the-box thinking. But it's one thing to think out-of-the-box when you are starting a business. Thinking entrepreneurially. Whatever that word would be. Um, Trying to be resourceful. Trying to solve a problem. You want to think out of the box. But how do you think out of a box in relation to redefining a person? How do you challenge the existing state of a person that Jesus Christ took on flesh, entered into the world to die on the cross for sinners? How exactly, what exactly does out of the box thinking look like? I would encourage you guys, if you want to, if you're tempted towards this out-of-the-box thinking in relation to God, I encourage you guys to do this to your loved ones. Just try and be on the cutting edge, out-of-the-box thinking. Challenge the status quo of the existence of your mother. Instead of seeing her as the woman who carried you for nine months and then fed you endlessly when you were a helpless little thing, and then took care of you for all of your years of life or your caretaker if you did not have a mother, just try and treat her like a slave one day. Be on the cutting edge and see how that works out for you. And then come back and tell us, is that going to work well for you to redefine the existence, the character of your very own mother? Well, if that doesn't make sense, why would it make sense to God? Yet that's what it seems these people are doing here. Out of the box thinking, coming up with new commands where God hadn't commanded saying that god was such and such when really he wasn't and then not only that but you see in first second timothy that they're living actually very ungodly lives so not according to god's character he is the father after all who had given birth to the christians well we as sinful human beings are never called on to redefine god's definition of who he is or his laws these are god's definitions and god's ways and paul here says to timothy Follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me. But even there, Paul knows that the words he says are not really his own. They are ultimately God's. So in 1 Timothy 6, go ahead and turn there. Verse 2. Paul has this understanding. These are all from God. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different, a, a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the teaching that accords with godliness, he is the puffed up one, the conceited one, and understands nothing. So even Paul himself, he tells Timothy, his disciple, to follow the pattern. He knows that what he receives is from God himself, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with it. First Baptist Church, you do not want creativity to be a mark of the pastor that preaches here, or any man who preaches here. I'm not talking about a creativity that lends him towards writing poems or make creating songs or writing songs. I'm talking about the creativity that obscures God's truth rather than re reveals it. The pastor or elder is to take what God has given him. That is the word and give it to God's people. First Timothy 620, Paul says, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. So here, Timothy, representing pastors all over, have been entrusted with something. They are stewards of something. And that thing is the word of God. And that's what they're supposed to feed their people. And in so doing, they remain useful and profitable. That's also part of the charge to teach sound doctrine. So they're supposed to tell them not to teach certain things, but then they are to teach other things awesome for timothy isn't it timid man young man probably struggles with the fear of man now we all understand what this is like you don't have to be a pastor to understand just think about the last time you shared the gospel um, or even if you do share the gospel you probably understand the fear of man that maybe timothy had here timothy this young man is supposed to take what is god's and give it to the people very simple it actually has nothing to do with necessarily his personality or how creative he can be with re-revealing God's truth but he's supposed to take it and give it which is why it says in 1 Timothy 4 go ahead and turn there Paul says until I come oh this is useful what are we supposed to do here what are elders, your elders supposed to do until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation to teaching 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, it says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. These are, after all, the very words as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, are God breathed. Those words are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So here in light of Timothy, young, frail Timothy. He's supposed to hold on to God's word and it's that that gives him power. It reminds me of Isaiah 55. Go ahead and turn there. Basically in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 55. Here, if you guys are struggling to, to know what exactly we should be trusting in, should we be trusting in the creativity of men? Here, we're just driven right back to the word of God. It's this that is efficient. efficient. 55 verse 10 it says for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven just imagine as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater so there you have like this this image of this life cycle here the water comes down from the from heaven onto the earth and it causes things to sprout it actually bears fruit it helps bring life give life Other people benefit from it. And so God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. God who is in the heavens, he rains down his words upon us. And it too is to bear this fruit. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You hear, you hear how that all, all of that is guaranteed. Fruitfulness will come if Timothy is to take what God has given him and give it to the people. Forget these endless myths and genealogies. We have God's word that effects new life and brings new life here. It shall accomplish what God purposes. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Can you imagine that? You know, those of you guys who are green thumbs, I'm sure you plant some stuff and then you eventually kill it. But imagine God being the great harvester, the great farmer, and he knows that when he sends out his word to do what he wants, it never returns empty. He knows that every seed he places as he intends it, because he is the ultimate sower and he knows the people that he's calling. He knows every time that the word goes into the heart of someone he is going to call, it brings new life. God here is the omni-competent farmer, harvester, who is reaping for himself, his very own people, by his very own word. And that's why Timothy is supposed to be devoted to it. The words have already been laid out, the categories have already been defined. And here his greatest need is to commit himself to it. That's why it says in chapter one of first Timothy, go back and turn there. <clears throat> That's why basically the first, after the greeting you have here, a reminder, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, remain. That's what he's supposed to do. Remain and charge, remain and teach, remain and shepherd. He's supposed to be faithful to his call here, remaining to do what God has done. And Paul says there in 1 Timothy 4, 6, in so doing, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. You know how we show ourselves to be dedicated to the words of God? We have a call to worship in the beginning, in the service I'm talking about. You know, we have a call to worship there. That's not there simply because We feel like doing it. It's there because we believe that God's word is the thing that creates. In the beginning, there was God and the stuff around us was created because God spoke it into existence. And so in the beginning of worship, we have a call to worship. We hear the words of our maker and creator and we listen and we respond. It starts with the word of God. And so in in the songs that we sing, we hope that they would be scripturally based songs filled with good gospel content. Like the new song that we sung today, we have a scripture reading, whether it be one verse or whether it be many verses, reminding us of what God has told us, called of us and desires of us or reminded of who he is. And then, of course, we are committed to expositional preaching where we're taking books of the Bible and simply unfolding their meaning to the church congregation. That's my responsibility. Unfolding the word of God for God's people. And I have to say that in my time here, I have been very encouraged. I find the church to be quite attentive. So oftentimes in the back, people will come up to me with various questions about what I'm talking about here. Even during the week, I have received emails from some of you guys asking a question about what I'm talking about here. That's excellent. As you hear what I say, you compare it to what you find in scripture, and then you're actually seeking more understanding or even clarification some of you guys will even send me devotionals that you've read during the week. Really encouraging because it tells me that you guys are trying to be attentive to the words of God as opposed to the words of man. So let me encourage you guys to continue in that and be listening for the gospel. It's that that brings health and it's that that keeps health. So to repeat the charge there, He says it is to guard the gospel by rebuking and teaching. But what also needs to be understood, as Paul clarifies, is their aim in teaching. Look there in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, some of us who love principles and doctrine... This here speaks to us. Some of you guys love being precise over things, which God calls us to be precise and to know doctrine. But here you see that what is ultimate is not doctrinal precision. He doesn't say, I want you to charge them to not to teach anything differently because this, because I want you guys to be doctrinally precise, although that is the case. Here he says very clearly for us all, he says the aim of our charge, this is the goal of why we rebuke and why we teach even when people might get angry at us. The charge of our love, or to, uh, the aim of our charge is love that stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. It isn't hunting down false teachers as if what is greatest is doctrine without love. They're supposed to teach doctrine. They're supposed to protect it to guard it because of love. Now, to some people, this makes no sense. Tell people they can't teach something, that's not loving. Certainly love allows, doesn't it? Love always allows, but actually love does not always allow. What would it mean to love God only to allow false teachers to pervert his revelation? Let's say you have your loved one Would you appreciate it if someone else started treating them like a slave? Does love allow that? Or would love drive you to actually protect this person, their reputation, their being, their character, their ways, their revelation, their acts? Love for God leads not to a twisting of God's truth, but the preservation of it amongst others. People here in the world, and there's a domino effect here, right? So I want you guys to get this right. All of you do- people who love being doctrinally precise, who might love to talk theology, some of us might love to talk about theology more than we love serving the body. There's something wrong with that. Um, Jesus says that if that's the case, we should check and see if we're actually in the faith. Um, there's a domino effect here. The, the last domino that we read is: you charge them not to teach differently, and you and you teach right. The aim of that is love. So love knocks over the charge domino, love charge. But behind that you have, what what does love flow out of here? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So, and all of those terms, interestingly enough, are all about how one stands before God, one's relationship before God. It's almost like one's relationship before God then births love, which then births the protection and guarding of pure doctrine. It's relationship with God, your standing of God, that then births love, that then causes one to protect doctrine here. That's what this rebuke is based in. So if Timothy knew that he possessed these things before God, that is a pure heart, a cleansed and forgiven heart before God, If he knew that he had a good conscience, that is, he knew what was right and wrong and he was justified, declared righteous, he was forgiven of his sins, had the righteousness of Jesus. And then he had a sincere faith, a genuine faith in Jesus, the real Jesus. If he knew all of those things and he knew that he possessed those things, why would he want to let false teachers go on living in error? So some of you guys, maybe you're not so doctrinally precise. Maybe you just love and you want to love, you know, your neighbors who are talking trash on Christ. Or maybe even just simply saying to you what they believe about Jesus, which is not according to the word of God. And your temptation might be to go on and let them believe what they believe and to teach what they teach. That's the loving thing. But yet here. A pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith is not what they possess. They don't possess a cleansed heart. They don't know what is right or wrong before God. And they don't, certainly don't, aren't believing in the real Jesus. Why would Timothy, why would you want other people to go on in their lives knowing that they are from the devil? When they know, when Paul tells us here, that their consciences have been seared. That they have become unprofitable. And there in the verse in chapter 1, look there in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these, the the, these are a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, by swerving from these, they wander away into vain discussions. It's like they're talking to themselves about the things that they want to talk about, but they're missing their relationship with God. A leader who desires to please man will flatter people and tell them what their itching ears want to hear. But the man of God will tell them what God desires of them, even when they know it's going to make things uncomfortable, even when they know that they're going to want to hear God's will. But don't get me wrong here. We're not supposed to just simply blast them with pure doctrine. We're supposed to be speaking things in love and in patience and with the goal of salvation there. The goal isn't pure doctrine. The goal is salvation. That's clearly what we're called to do here. And and we see that Paul says, do everything with patience, bearing with them. That you might save yourself and your hearers. You know what must have helped Timothy in this position here? In carrying out this charge? It's having a congregation that expected these very things of their pastor. Paul speaks to the whole entire church at the end. And the implication there is that Timothy would read this letter to the whole entire church. So the whole entire church now knows... What should be on the forefront of Timothy's mind? And I think that helps the church or helps Timothy with the charge. When a conviction, when a church holds a conviction that their church- that their pastor, their elders must fear God more than them. That is good. Think about it this way. It's, it's a weird thing that I do. Sometimes I think about us all as different types of sheep um, with different personalities. I, I think that about myself. Imagine this. Imagine being a sheep, being taken care of by a shepherd who had sheepophobia. Just play that out in your mind for a little bit. What would it be like to be a sheep being taken care of by a shepherd who has sheepophobia? That is not a good thing. Imagine, you know, eventually it might be fun. You know, a bunch of sheep go and play games with a shepherd and they scare him and he runs away. But over time... Imagine what a task and a burden it would be when your shepherd who's supposed to lead you and feed you cannot do it because he's always too scared about hurting your feelings. He never wants to get his hands dirty. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to say to your shepherd, just shear me already. Do something, do anything, something that's going to help me instead of catering to my every whim and desires that come and go just like the wind. In the valleys of death, you wonder if our shepherd is really going to tell us where the good stuff is, even when we aren't aware that we're in the valley of death. When when we run out of grass, is our shepherd really going to tell us where the good grass is? Or is he just going to let us die here? Or will he be paralyzed, wondering if our feelings are going to be hurt? and he won't tell us to escape the wolves that would be a shepherd who instead of keeping his sheep from destruction leads his sheep into destruction so church would I be a responsible shepherd if all I cared about was your temporal happiness if all I ever lived for was to serve your every whim and desire and craving I think the answer is pretty clear no i would be very irresponsible think about it for yourself would you be a responsible friend a responsible parent a responsible spouse if all you ever cared for and lived for was the temporal happiness of your loved one no you would be the greatest enabler of all sure your child your child might find it fun in the beginning he's getting all the candy he wants But I can assure you when he's laying on his deathbed because he cannot breathe because he's obese or something like that, because you're not drawing clear boundaries for him, directing him in the way to go, limiting his television watching, limiting his iPad playing. You'll come to realize that that person with the authority would have done something different. You might be popular for a season as they have people have their satisfactions met. But soon enough, you show yourself to be what you are, a slave to other people and not to God. For the pastor, love to God will lead to the preservation of God's truths amongst God's people. Saying no to the peripheral things, even though they might be important. And even though we want to take initiatives to fulfill it, let's say the implications of the gospel. But when we preserve the gospel, those implications and the peripheral things will actually be better taken care of. If the greatest thing we highlight is our drums, then all of us will say, man, that's a stinking awesome drum set. But when we highlight the gospel and say, for the sake of the church and the building up of the body and the the glorification of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on behalf of sinners, we therefore understand style secondarily. Then we're really preserving the gospel. Love for God, love for his word will lead to the preservation of God's truth amongst God's people. And a proper love for man will want to see those people, even false teachers, come to love God and His truth. That's what he says there in 1 Timothy 4.16. Go ahead and turn over to there. Paul says, keep a close watch. Close watch. Be attentive. Give effort to. Tend to your heart in yourself and the teaching He says, persist in this, not with creativity, not with ingenuity, not with an entrepreneurial spirit, but just take the things of God and you give it to the people. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim is salvation for the people. The ultimate aim from God's perspective is God's glory. And that's what Timothy here is supposed to do as he tells people not to teach different doctrine and he's, as he preserves and protects the true gospel and, and then as he preaches it. It is the gospel according to the word of God and the power of the spirit that saves and it is that that brings health. So it's no surprise here that for Timothy, as, he writes, as Paul writes to the church, that the thing that sort of is the headline is protect true doctrine. That is, the truths about a person, ultimately, Jesus Christ. That is at the center of this church health project. So if you find yourself visiting with us today and you're hearing this gospel, please know that that is what we preach because that is what saves. And if you want to be saved and you know yourself not to be a a Christian, then repent of your sins, turn and believe. That's what you see in the book of Acts as you see the church get established People preach the gospel and people respond saying, what can we do to have that to be saved, to be freed from destruction, repent and be saved. It's the gospel here that gives birth. And so we as a church want to be grounded in the gospel like a seed that becomes a tree. This tree is planted in healthy soil. It's grounded in the gospel. So it's my intention here that the gospel will be preached every single Sunday from every passage of the text. But then also, we are not to only be grounded in it. We're supposed to be growing in it. So unfortunately, some people think that gospel is only for new believers or people entering into Christianity, and then you sort of move on with it. But it's not. It's something that affects all of our lives as we continue to grow and become healthy in it. It's not something that you move away from, but something that you press deeper into. And then, of course, not only are we to be grounded And growing in the gospel, we are sent with the gospel because it is that that saves. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering here we have a visible sign of the spiritual realities that is the gospel. Well, we'll go ahead and pray, give thanks for what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on behalf of sinners, and remember this gospel by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven... We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us by speaking your words of truth. And we therefore take it and we pray, Lord, that first Baptist would be about giving it. Keep me and keep whatever other pastors might come in the future from being creative with doctrine. But Lord, we pray that we would just be faithful with dispensing what you have given us. We know, Lord, that it is the gospel that gives us life and the gospel that saves and the gospel that sanctifies So we pray, Lord, that we would be zealous in guarding it and preaching it. And in everything, we would do this, these things in love, seeking that we seeking your glory and seeking the salvation of others. In your name we pray. Amen.